You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Amen. You can have a seat. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, Good morning and welcome. Uh, Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn to Luke chapter 19. If you need a Bible, some folks from our strike team will be coming around and can get you a Bible so you can follow along. Um, If you're reading along in one of the blue paperback Bibles that are handed out, um, page 512 in those Bibles, Luke chapter 19. Today is the last Sunday in March. I don't know if you recognized how fast March went. In fact, the official first day of spring was last Monday, the 20th. Not that you can tell from looking outside, um, because it doesn't feel like spring, does it? I mean, the sun kind of fools us, but the temperature and the snow, and by the way, it might snow again this week, according to my weather app. And I know that weather is often cyclic, right? It, it, it rotates. Some years the snow melts and the weather is really good, like all the way through Thanksgiving. Uh, and then it melts early and then the so early spring. And sometimes we get blizzards in March, right? And that's just how it is. We live here. We can't complain about that. We chose to live here. We don't have scorpions or rattlesnakes, so I suppose it's a good trade-off, right? That's the... That's the reminder, but I have to remind myself of that. Maybe you have to remind yourself of that. I don't know about you, but I tend to get my hopes up for spring a little bit. Winter's been long and cold, and the kids have been indoors, and you can't do all the things you want to do. I'm expecting spring temperatures and looking forward to being outside and baseball, right? Riding bikes with my kids down the street. But for that, we're going to have to wait just a bit longer, I think. Some of this morning said, Jake, only six more weeks till motorcycle season. Only six, right? It's just, it is what it is. Now, not only that, that I have this expectation for spring, what it should be like, what I found is that my attitude and my actions are affected by my expectations, right? If we're expecting something, and it doesn't happen in the way and time that we think. Our attitudes, our, our heart posture, the way we uh, position ourselves in relationship to life and other people, and our actions, the way we respond, are affected by those expectations, whether they were met or not met. If I'm expecting a warm spring and instead I get 28 degrees and 5 inches of snow, my motivation to roll the snowblower out one more time The motivation to chip away at the small ice mountain that's growing at the end of my driveway is pretty low. Why? Because I was hoping for something different. I wasn't hoping for this. Maybe I'll just leave it for another month and maybe the sun will melt it. Right? That's the the, about as far as the motivation gets some days. My expectations affect my attitude and my actions. And my expectations are challenged by reality. Reality challenges my expectations. In our passage today, in Luke chapter 19, Jesus 
teaches a parable that challenges the expectations of his disciples and all those who were following Jesus at the time. And in this parable, Jesus is calling his disciples to faithfulness. This is what it means to be faithful as he resets their expectations. So he resets their expectations and says, no, no, you were expecting this. Let me tell you what's really happening and let me show you what faithfulness looks like in this reality in which you find yourself. So let's uh, read our text and then we'll get after it. We got a fair amount to cover today in just a few verses. Uh, Luke chapter 19, we're going to read verses 11 through 27. I invite you to follow along. It'll be on the screen as well. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Luke 19, starting in verse 11. As they heard these things, he, speaking of Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I could have Excuse me, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is God's word for us today. Now, one of the things that I love about a passage like this, despite that it's got some complicated bits, is that Luke tells us exactly why Jesus tells this parable. Right at the beginning, uh, if you remember last week, Jesus unveiled his overall mission and purpose. Luke 19, verse 10, the theme of Luke's entire gospel, his interaction with Zacchaeus, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what Jesus has just said. I'm here to seek out and to save the lost. And then in verse 11, as they heard these things, <clears throat> as they heard Jesus tell us, tell us, this is what I'm here for, he then proceeds to tell them a parable. And Luke tells us, he tells us a parable for two reasons. One, because he was near to Jerusalem. And two, because the disciples and others who were following supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, in 
in the story, this is the last bit of the, the traveling story, if you will, in Luke that started back in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, started there, and now, 10 chapters later, we are here, and this is the last stop, if you will, on Jesus' movement towards Jerusalem. Next week, we'll look at Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem to the cheers of the crowds. So today is the last kind of rest stop, if you will, on his journey to Jerusalem. And Jesus was going to Jerusalem to be crucified for the sins of the world. And they're all entering Jerusalem at this time near the Passover to celebrate the Passover together. And so in the minds of the disciples, just getting inside their heads here for a second, if there was going to be a perfect time for Jesus to reveal himself in power as God's promised Messiah, as God's promised Savior, then the season or the, the celebration of Passover would be the perfect time to do it. Passover celebrated God's rescue of his people from bondage in Egypt. So they celebrated in the Passover. So if there was going to be a greater Passover, if I can say it that way, where God would show up in power and liberate his people, and this Jesus who they've been following is saying, I'm the guy, you can just see for a second in the minds of the disciples are going, it's happening. This is it. This has got to be it. What better time to liberate God's people than in a greater Passover? And so there was this growing expectation, this anticipation that soon, soon, this power that we saw in Jesus to heal the sick, to to, to heal the blind, to, to set free from demonic oppression, that this power of Jesus was going to just explode and it was going to crush the oppressors. And Luke says that Jesus tells them this parable because this is what they were supposing. They supposed that Jesus, or that that Jesus was going to bring about the fullness of the kingdom imminently, right now. And so Luke says that Jesus told them this parable, if I can say it this way, to correct their expectations a little. So that's the condition that Jesus is addressing. That's the problem that we're going to look at a little bit today. There's a challenge of faulty expectations, In this case, a a faulty view of the king and the kingdom. It's not entirely wrong. It's just misaligned expectations. But Jesus gives a clear promise of the kingdom so that we might be faithful to King Jesus even now as we wait for the kingdom to come. That's the big takeaway for us. I think that's the takeaway for the disciples. That Jesus is giving them, and by extension giving us, a clear promise of the kingdom. Resetting expectations so that we might know what it means to be faithful to King Jesus now, so that his disciples might know what it means to be faithful to King Jesus as they wait for the fullness of the kingdom to come. So to help us understand better, we've done this before as we've looked at parables in Luke. Before we get into the the content of the parable, it helps to understand the context of the parable. Context of the parable before we get into the content of the parable. So we're going to do that again this morning. By the way, we should do this every time we open up God's Word and come to a parable in particular. What's the context in which it's, being, which it's being told? What's the way in which the people listening would have understood it? So let's first look at the context. Luke tells us that Jesus tells them these things because they are assuming the kingdom of God is going to come in its fullness immediately. And so I'm going to give away the ending right here at the beginning. Jesus is saying 
Yes, the kingdom of God is at hand, which he said many times. The kingdom is inaugurated as Jesus arrives in the flesh. It's going to be established and secured in just a few days in the story of Luke when Jesus is crucified in his death and in his resurrection and, and soon will be finalized or the fullness of the consummation of the kingdom will come. But it is yet to come when Jesus returns just like he said he would. And in every age, there are voices that are crying out. In every age, this is not unique, the end is near, right? In every age, there's a man with a sandwich board outside of City Hall. The end is near. Now, he might not always have a sandwich board and you might not always have a City Hall, but in every age of human life, there are always prophets of doom and gloom. And for us as Christians, while we believe that the return of Christ and the consummation of the kingdom is imminent, we also believe, because Jesus tells us, it might not be immediate, at least not from our perspective. Imminent means it's on the way, it is at hand, it is in process, it is a sure guarantee. It is imminent. The return of King Jesus is imminent and also yet to come. It's an already and a not yet. And we talk about this a lot. And that's the first part of the context of this parable. Jesus seems to be correcting their expectations of the timing of the kingdom of God. When is it going to come in its fullness? Because we all think that's happening right now, tomorrow, right? According to what Luke tells us. That's the first part of the context. The second part of the context is Jesus is not only correcting their expectation of the timing of the kingdom, but also the nature of the kingdom. Here's what I mean. Jesus uses this story, uh, an example, if you will, an illustration that they would have very clearly understood from their own recent history. So here's a little bit of context which might help us. Nearly 70 years before the time of Jesus, in about 40 or so BC, Herod the Great made a pilgrimage to Rome in order to secure kingship, to prove to Rome, who at that time saw Israel or as kind of a, a, a vassal state, to say, I am the rightful ruler, Herod the Great, I am the rightful king over the Jews. And so Herod made his pilgrimage, if you will, to Rome and then was granted kingship. Rome said, yes, you can serve as king underneath Rome, over the Jewish people. And you can imagine, if you know anything about the history of the Roman Empire, at this time, in about 40, they were on the verge of crisis. The Republic was crumbling, and so you can imagine that from a, from a socio-political standpoint, having some stability in Israel was a big deal for them, and so they were probably happy about that. They would be happy to have good, strong, loyal leadership in that territory. Fast forward to the year about four B.C., approximately 30 years before the time of Jesus. And one of Herod's, Herod's sons, Her, uh, Herod Archelaus, was one of the next in line to be king over Jerusalem and Judea. But he had a brother who disputed his reign. In fact, he had a couple of brothers. And because of an incident involving Herod sending soldiers into the temple grounds and killing approximately 3,000 Jews. Well, let's just say people did not like Herod Archelaus very much. 
there was a large group of citizens who said, no, we don't, we don't want that one. We don't like him. He's wicked and evil. So when Herod Archelaus made his trip to Rome to speak with Caesar Augustus to secure his kingship, there was actually a delegation of Jews who went with, like, went alongside, essentially, to Rome to argue against his kingship, historically. So that's a little bit of what's happening here. In the end, the kingdom was divided between Archelaus and his brother Antipas and his other brother Philip. And as a side note, it was Herod Antipas who had John the Baptist killed. It was also Herod Antipas who went back and forth with Pilate, who was the Roman governor at the time of Jesus' trial and crucifixion. Archelaus was eventually exiled. No one liked him anyway kind of thing. But just so you understand the context here, this political gamesmanship, if you will, would have been very familiar to Jesus' disciples and all the people of the region. So when Jesus tells a parable about a nobleman who goes off to a faraway land to secure a kingship and that there's a group of people who don't like that guy and they go to kind of fight against that claim, that's the context. It's a context we would not have otherwise because... Well, it's only a little bit of how politics works here, right? Political gamesmanship? Just a little. So he would be giving them a reference from their own recent history. That's a little bit of the context that it's helpful for us to understand. Now we get to the content of the parable. And the content of this parable is ultimately about faithfulness. Here's what Jesus says. A nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom. Now, clearly Jesus is using this parallel to speak of himself as the nobleman who is going to a far country to to receive the right to rule as king. The picture here is that this is not going to be an immediate fulfillment. The idea of a far country means this is going to take a while. But implied in Jesus' parable is that the kingdom is rightfully his. He receives it, Jesus says, Verse 15, when the nobleman returns, when he returned, having received the kingdom. Okay? So that's just the the picture here. So he plans to travel to receive the rights to rule the kingdom. Before he goes, he calls together ten servants and gives them each a mina. It's equivalent to approximately three months' wages for the average worker. And he entrusts each of those servants with his resources... He prepays them, essentially, or gives them out of his own uh, coffers three months' worth of wages so that they might work under his name and on his behalf while he is away. He has business that must continue while he's gone, so he entrusts his servants, each, all ten of them, an equal portion so that they might work on his behalf. And when he returns, he brings two things, blessings for the faithful and judgments for the unfaithful. That's what he brings when he returns as the rightful king. And just so we don't skip over it, verse 14, Jesus says there were some citizens who hated this noble man and sent a delegation to speak against his claim to be king. And the words coming from their mouth is this, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now we're going to get to that in a moment. But it's important to to the context, there were some who made it publicly known that they did not want this man to be their king. Now, it's the first part we've talked about that 
the rightful king is going away to receive his kingship. It's going to take a little bit of time. And while he's away, he's entrusting his business to his servants to faithfully carry out work on his behalf in an environment that is openly hostile to this nobleman and his claim to be king. You following me? The parable continues now as Jesus explains to them what's happening. This is what faithfulness to the master looks like. That's what Jesus is saying, I think, with this parable. This is what faithfulness to the rightful king looks like. And he draws this really clear contrast between these servants, faithfulness and unfaithfulness. Verse 13, engage in business until I come. They're supposed to, while he's gone, use the master's resources under the master's name. If they opened up a shop, it would be under the name or the banner of their master. Everyone would have known that they were doing business as an agent of this nobleman. This is not some like angel investor. It would have been clearly known they were doing business on behalf of this nobleman. And so when he returns, he has them open up their books, their finances, to show what kind of business they've done. This is what the first one says. He comes and says, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. The second one comes and says, Lord, your mina has made five minas more. More. And in both instances, the master essentially says, well done, and he blesses those faithful servants with more responsibilities. In the case of the parable, authority or rule or uh, responsibilities over different cities within the kingdom. Now, we're going to talk about numbers here in a second. We'll get to the fruit of their labors and their investments in a moment, but I want to highlight something I think is very important that, I don't know, I tend to overlook. The end of the uh, verse at 15, chapter 19, verse 15, is translated for us in the ESV, what they had gained by doing business. And I think that's a fine translation. But I think we need to be careful not to read too much of our own Western American experience in capitalism into the text. What they gained financially is important. Please hear me. It is important as we look at their stewardship and because the, they're using their master's resources. But the emphasis isn't only on the profit itself, but on the idea of how much business they did. Numbers are a part of that, but numbers relate to customers. So how much business they transacted tells us not just one thing, actually tells us two things. The first thing it tells us is, well, how much profit did they make, right? If he put one mina to work and it came back with 10, well, it tells us his profits. Look what I've made on your behalf. But it also tells us something else. It also tells us the reach of each person into the public sphere. The amount of transactions that they had, the amount of business that they did, tells us that they were bold and confident and out there with their master's name, not just his money. So the books that they provided to him were... Told, showed the master that they were engaged in good work on behalf of this now king. If they hadn't been engaged in business, they wouldn't have made much profit. But I don't think the master is as worried about the profit as he is about his servant's public faithfulness in a very hostile environment. Think about it. For months, maybe longer, 
these servants labored in the name of their master, in the name of this king-to-be, despite the fact that at least a, a, a portion of, maybe even a large portion of the population did not want him to be their king. And yet, they faithfully engaged every day on behalf of their master to expand his reach and to work in his name. I just don't want to miss that. Now, there were 10 servants. Jesus only tells us of, of two of the faithful servants. We don't know about the other seven. It's not really crucial to the point of the parable. A couple of faithful servants and then one unfaithful servant. Look at verses 20 through 23. Then another came, another one of the servants. Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. I didn't do anything with it. I literally wrapped it up and tucked it into my sock drawer. And then he gives his reason. Look at verse 21. Here's why I didn't do anything with what you gave me, he says. For I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. So this servant levels a pretty heavy charge against his master. And now, if we look at the parable as a whole, there's nothing in the parable that gives us any impression that this master was cruel or harsh or severe in any way. On the contrary, he seems quite generous. The master replies in verse 22, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. This is where the parable takes a hard turn. Here's the deal. The servant's claim is that he was afraid of the master. But the master actually turns it back on him and says, I'm going to use your words against you. If you think I'm a severe man, if you really do think I'm a severe and harsh master like you claim that I am, then you would have at least put the money into some kind of a bank or investment or something that bare minimum would return interest, but you didn't even do that. If you were so afraid of me, the master is saying, why do you do the one thing that is sure to essentially make me the most upset? Right? What I think is happening here is the master is calling the servant's bluff. He's calling his bluff. I don't think the unfaithful servant was actually afraid of the master. I think he was hedging his bets. I think he was saying, what happens if the master comes back and he doesn't get the kingship? Then everyone who's been working under his name is immediately going to be on the outside of the now whoever the new ruler is because we've been working for the other guy. What if this delegation that went along, the crowd that hates him, what if they win? I don't want to be on the wrong side of this, right? So I'm going to hedge my bets. I'm not going to align myself with the master publicly while he's away. I don't want the crowds to look down on me. I'm just going to sit here, tuck this little Mina away, and if he does get the kingdom, I'll just give it back to him. But if he doesn't, I won't have made enemies amongst those who hate him. The servant isn't afraid of the master. In fact, I don't think the servant fears the master at all in any way. That's actually the problem. I think the servant, the unfaithful servant, is actually afraid of the crowds more than he is the master. He's driven not by a holy fear of God, but by a fear of man. 
And fear of man opposes faithfulness to God. Fear of man opposes faithfulness. The unfaithful servant is is not so sure that he wants to be aligned with the master, especially as the master becomes more and more unpopular with the people. One commentary says it this way, excuse me. The master's primary expectation from his servants is courageous public faithfulness to an unseen master in an environment where some are actively opposed to his rule. The contrast I don't think could be more clear. Fear of man over and against a right fear of God is the antithesis of faithfulness. It is anti-faithfulness. And Jesus, in the parable, highlights that. Fear of man opposes faithfulness. But it also does something else. It doesn't just oppose faithfulness. Fear of man also undermines fruitlessness. Excuse me, fruitfulness. Fear of man undermines fruitfulness. Nothing was made of the mina that this servant was given. There was no fruit born from it. It was literally buried in a handkerchief. Whereas faithfulness, over time, bears fruit. Jesus taught all kinds of other parables about bearing fruit. In a similar but slightly different parable, the master gives different servants different talents And those that put them to use as faithful stewards get a return on their investment, so to speak, if I can say it that way. But the one guy who didn't and just buried in the ground gets nothing, and in fact, he has it taken away from him, a lot like this parable. Verse 24, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10. And this kind of shocked everyone else in the room who were like, wait a minute, but Lord, he already has 10. Does he need more? And and Jesus through this parable says this, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, I don't think he's declaring some kind of class warfare here. He's teaching a principle of stewardship. Remember what the faithful servant said? Maybe you, maybe you missed it when we read through it. He says, Lord, your mina has made 10 more. Yours has. I think that's important. He doesn't say, look what I have done with your resources. Look what my work has produced for you, Master. He doesn't say that. He says, your resource has made. Implied there is, in my hands, it has multiplied in this way, but he rightly acknowledges who the owner is and who the steward is. And this is repeated all over the New Testament as a stewardship principle. All that we have belongs to the master. How might we steward it for his good and trust in him to multiply it? The unfaithful servant has a faulty view of the king. His expectations of the king are skewed. And this is why it's a tragedy. Fear of man is a tragedy for the individual because it's the opposite of faithfulness. You can't fear man and fear God. So if I might borrow from Jesus' teaching on love and money, you'll be devoted to one, the praise of man, and you'll despise the other, the fear of the Lord. But fear of man is also a tragedy for the kingdom because it undermines fruitfulness. Putting the master's mina in the sock drawer 
means that the master's work in that part of the neighborhood is now unfunded, if I can say it that way. So the kingdom suffers. Now, at the end of the day, we have confidence in the reign and rule of the rightful king who will always bring about the fullness of his kingdom. He's not going to be ultimately thwarted by a single unfaithful servant stashing resources in his closet. But there is work to be done and there is joy to be had. The first two servants get the joy of reaping a harvest that ultimately depends on their master. But the unfaithful servant gets none of that joy. None of it. And as Jesus is teaching this, he's also giving them not only a faithful picture of himself as the king, but of the kingdom. The final correction to their faulty view comes in verse 27. He says this, But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now this is not one of those verses that shows up in the illustrated children's Bible. It just doesn't. And I think there was a misconception that this delegation could campaign actively against the king, publicly proclaiming their hatred of him, and then in the end, everything would probably still turn out okay. Like our own modern-day politics, I, I find it fascinating, particularly in presidential primaries. You watch these things ever? Especially in the primaries. They, the national politicians spend millions of dollars bashing one another, calling each other names and how unfit they are for office. And then as they start to fall off and not gain the traction that they need, all of a sudden they're endorsing the person that they just said was unfit. What? And it's not a, this is not a, a one side of the political aisle or the other here, right? This is just politics, 101. Maybe if I'm now nice to him, I'll get a spot in the administration, right? That's kind of how it works. And Jesus is saying, no, if you think this is how the kingdom works, you guys are sadly mistaken. Now, the parable doesn't go on to describe the actual punishment that's due these wicked people. We don't actually see it happen. It doesn't happen yet because it's a parable. It's just a story. And, but I think that's kind of the point. Jesus leaves it hanging right there, that this is what the enemies of the master are due upon the master's return, which, remember, is the bigger point of this parable. Jesus is talking about himself, and I think he's saying this. Like the master in the parable, when I return, I'm going to bring with me blessings, overflowing blessings for the faithful and judgment for my enemies. That this is a sure promise for when the fullness of the kingdom is realized upon the return of the rightful king. So the question is, when we're reading a parable like this, okay, what do we do with this? What do we take from this? A couple things I think we can take from a parable like this when we read it. First is this, and it's simple. We talk about this a lot, and maybe I beat this drum far too much, but I think the implications are far-reaching an already and not yet view of the kingdom. That we can have an already and a not yet view of God's kingdom. Because if the kingdom is only already, then I think we lose the hopeful forward marching of the church towards Jesus' full and final victory. If this is all there is, then I think it diminishes the glory of the resurrection to come. And if the kingdom is only not yet, and it's not already, 
then I think we lose the importance of living in the power of the Holy Spirit here and now. This is not a throwaway world. All creation will be made new, redeemed from the curse. And this parable, I think, reminds us that there's work to be done here on behalf of the king as we await his return. So we can live as citizens of the kingdom already while joyfully waiting for the kingdom not yet. So that helps us. But it also helps us, I think, in two other ways that relate to that. One is remembering this, that Jesus is the rightful king. One of the primary takeaways from this parable for me that I've been wrestling with all week is that Jesus is the rightful king. There are many who hate him. There are many who despise his rule. At the time of Jesus, there were many who rejected his claims to be God's promised Messiah. They did not want Jesus to be their king. John says it in his gospel. We read it last week. That he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Make no mistake, Jesus is king here and now. This is his domain. So I refuse to throw up my hands and just give in to the idea that the world is too far gone into the grip of Satan. In fact, Jesus said, when Peter makes his confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the Savior, the one sent to save us and redeem. Jesus responds with, Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Peter, on this rock, this rock of your confession that I am the Savior and the King, on that rock I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. So to quote my friend Pastor Steve Treichler, we're called to go into the kingdom of darkness and trash the joint. There's work to do because Jesus is King here and now, and those who push against Jesus, who want to play fast and loose with God's word, who want to make Jesus more palatable by softening him or skirting his clear instructions, who think that it'll all just be fine in the end, the caution from this parable is that it's not how the kingdom works. When the rightful King Jesus returns, he will indeed come with blessings for the faithful. Those who have been faithful, supplied by grace from the Holy Spirit, will receive peace and prosperity as king, in the kingdom as heirs with Jesus. And those who are Jesus' enemies will receive the judgment that's due them. Now, you th might think this makes Jesus cruel, but I think it makes him just. Psalm 18 says this, With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure, and with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. The psalmist is saying there's one way that God responds to the pure, he's pure. To the blameless, he's blameless. But with the crooked, he seems harsh. But there's only one way to be blameless and pure to have our crooked parts made straight, and that is only by surrendering to Jesus. There's only one blameless man, that's him. The rest of us have our own sin to account for, and this is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. 
that the king offers to his unfaithful servants mercy and forgiveness. Jesus is the better master. And while there's time here as we await his return, while we have time, this is an open invitation to put aside our fear of man, to put aside what others might think, what we might think of ourselves, to to acknowledge our sin, to ask for and receive forgiveness that comes through Jesus. And King Jesus is pleased to grant forgiveness and welcome us as his own. Make no mistake, Jesus is the rightful king. And our third and final takeaway from this parable is this, that we are then called, if we do belong to him, to walk in faithful allegiance to him. Now, if we look at this parable, as we tend to do, and we try to find ourselves in the story, we can probably see ourselves as those ten servants at the beginning. The master said, here, here, I'm giving you resources out of my own generosity And so there's a call, and if I can say it, a responsibility as Jesus' followers to work faithfully until he comes again. This is what the Apostle Paul tells young Pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, share in suffering, he says, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Paul's saying, in our labors we multiply what God has entrusted to us. Suffering well, not getting bogged down in silly pursuits and disputes to run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, the race that has guidelines and stipulations. We labor hard as unto the Lord, knowing that for the Lord our labor is never in vain. Faithfully working with the name of Jesus clearly posted above our door so that it's obvious where our allegiance is. And we go about our business faithfully trusting God for fruit. So when your personal devotions this week or around the table today at lunchtime or before bed with your kids or with your spouse or maybe in community group this week, ask yourselves these questions. Do I hold a robust view of the already not yet kingdom? Do I lean one more one way or the other? How does that affect the way I view my life, my time, my money, my relationships? Do I have hope in kingdom now and the kingdom to come? Ask yourself this, do I submit to Jesus as king and see him as king here and now? Am I his disciple? Have I fully surrendered to him or am I hedging my bets just in case? And if he is truly king now, if this is his domain, how does that change the way I view the issues that are relevant? How does that change the way I speak about some of those issues and interact with the people that I care about who live and work right around me? And ask yourself this, what does it look like to walk in faithful allegiance to Jesus wherever he has placed us? What does faithfulness look like in your work, in your home, in your school? What are the things that God's entrusted to you? Time, talent, treasure. How might you put those things to work to advance his kingdom priorities and not merely your own? 
What might we have to risk for the sake of allegiance to King Jesus? Friends, this parable is a helpful realignment of our assumptions, our expectations about Jesus and his kingdom. The king rules and reigns now, and the fullness of God's kingdom might take a while from our perspective, but it'll come. And in the meantime, we show allegiance to our master by putting all that he's giving us to good use in advancing his name and his mission until he returns. Would you pray with me? Father, it's easy to read a passage like this and want so badly to be the faithful servant. And we confess that by your grace, sometimes we are walking in faithfulness and in the power of your Holy Spirit, and other times we're not. We are distracted and pulled away by so many things. We are driven to, to fear by what others might think of us. We are worried about the end and lose hope in the already. I want to ask for two things this morning, Father. That you would reset our, our, our understanding, our expectations of who you are and of your kingdom and our part in it. That we would see you for who you truly are. That if we see you as cruel and cold and aloof and far off, that you'd correct this false view that we would see you for who you are, holy and compassionate, a good father. And if our view of your kingdom is skewed in one way or another, that we can just do our own thing, that this is our life and there's time for that later, would you realign those expectations as well? That our fresh surrender to you would be met with your mercy and your grace to empower us to live in your kingdom for your glory. Would you encourage us, even as we come to the communion table, that we see all of this arc, all of this journey of, of Jesus moving to Jerusalem in order to secure for us forgiveness and life and participation in the kingdom. Encourage us even as we come to the communion table, we pray in Jesus' name.